Oh, Father, we praise you for who you are. You're good and you're righteous and you're holy and you're worthy to be praised. And um, your mercies are new every morning and you're a faithful God to us. And we know that you love us because you sent your son to this earth to live a sinless life. And uh, he willingly went to a cross for us, took our place. You poured your righteous wrath out on him on our behalf. And we have forgiveness of sins and new hearts that did not love you and now do love you and want uh, to live for you more and more. And so, Father, we thank you that we um, are no longer slaves to our sin, slaves to your righteousness. And so, Father, we... um, Pray that this morning would be a time that when we open your word and talk about something kind of difficult, um, that, Father, we would remember who we are, our identity, and you, and we remember um, that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that, that you have made a way that we have peace with you through your Son and So, Father, I pray um, this morning that you, by your Spirit, would teach us that as we are convicted, um, Lord, that that, um, we would also be encouraged and that we would be women who fight sin, who repent, um, because we want to honor you. We commit this morning to you, and I ask for your help, Father, and um, it's in your son's name we pray. Okay, well, welcome. It is good to see you guys. And I am going to, let's go over the disciplines. If you don't mind, please turn your notebooks over and we're just going to get started this morning. We're going to talk about why we're here, the purpose, why you guys get up so early every other Saturday morning and come in and have eager uh expectation to grow in godliness, um, and we're here to equip one another in that. We're here to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with his word. So we live gospel-transformed lives. That's that's what we want to do. We want to live gospel-transformed lives, and you know what that does? It strengthens the church. It strengthens the church. In its gospel purpose. And the first discipline that we keep before us is, um, is uh, discipline one, our hearts. And I hope and we pray that you guys are getting a greater understanding of this discipline. We want to keep it before you always throughout Wellspring and, and, and really throughout all of life. Discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So let's do a quick review on the heart. When we're talking about heart, the heart, what are we talking about? Talking about the inner man, the inner you, the most important component of you. Remember we have an outer body. Um, We have an inner man and we have an outer man. And the outer man is uh, the physical part of us, you know, like our organs and our limbs. And the inner man is our heart, the place in which God reveals himself to man. So every thought, every desire, every will, our emotions, everything flows from our heart. Conversion takes place in the heart, the place for which everything flows, our wellspring verse. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard it. Guard our hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. So when we say heart, we're talking about all of you, who you are at the core, you in totality. And remember what God has provided for our hearts. Those who are in Christ Jesus um, have a new heart. Yet, there's a residue of sin, right? We are in that mixed condition. Remember that blue transformation of life? I was going to bring it. But remember, there is, um, we're not who we once were. That's the left part of that chart. We're not who we will be in glory. That's the right right side of that chart. And in the middle, 
we're in a mixed condition. And uh, God in his kindness has given us his word. And it's what we need. It's what he's given us to feed our new hearts in their mixed condition. And discipline one is all about our hearts coming into full contact with his word to worship him, to desire and love him, to, to acknowledge our dependence on him, to humble ourselves before him. Discipline two is uh, all about the home relationships. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Her home is the first place where the gospel should spill out, right? And thirdly, ministry. With a heart for God, discipline one, and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. That's discipline two. The faithful woman of God steps into, into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Since we have time this morning, I know you have this, and maybe some of you have written out your own, or you read this prayer that Scott um, shared with us, an example of how the Wellspring disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word. Um, if you're not familiar, if you haven't read it for a while, I encourage you to get this out. Let this be, not necessarily all these exact words, but let this be your heart motivation when you open his word. And when you think about the disciplines, this is what this is the attitude that we want to, to have. That, if you're wondering where that prayer is, it's oh. part of the outline in the link yeah. that Scott Maxwell taught on Yes, and it's also online. If you don't have it, you can print off another one. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, so, Heavenly Father, I intend this time in your word to be an expression of worship of you, desire for you, love for you, need of you, and dependence on you. Any of this and all of this is only possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is my Savior, and I approach you through him, my substitute and high priest. <coughs> I have your word open before me because you have revealed yourself there more clearly than any other place, and I long to know you better. I desire to see you in all your glory in the pages before me. I simply and humbly draw near to you to study you. Nearness to you through these pages of scripture is my good. I also have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and fallenness before you so that I might better understand what danger I truly was in and what dangers still lurk within me, so that I might see this sin that provoked your righteous wrath toward your Son and your grace that moved you to act as Savior toward me and Him. Your word is open before me so that I might undergird my life again today with your saving heart and motive in the gospel of your Son, who overcame the penalty of my sin and the power of my sin to enslave me. I need the foundation of your gospel under me clearly so that I can see just how you have equipped me through it to fight against my sin and to fight for obedience to you through Jesus Christ. I am here to rehearse your bedrock promises in the gospel to my soul. I have your word open before me to also study what righteousness and holiness of life looks like for one who has been made into a new creature in Christ. By your grace and power, I see holiness of life placed in front of me in the pages of Scripture, along to better align my life and behavior with what pleases you. I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home, and wherever you lead me today. All who come into contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you and your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we need that heart attitude this morning as we go before his word 
and look specifically at what God's Word has to say about the danger of a prideful heart. And we're going to talk about the hope of the gospel. And we're just going to keep going back to the hope we have in the gospel all morning long. We're going to talk about sin this morning. And you know what? It's not a very popular thing to talk about in the culture of the universal church, right? Um, But I don't know. God's word talks about it. We need to see our sin the way God sees it and how the hope of the gospel. I mean, if we don't talk about sin... How is the hope of the gospel even good news? Right? It's not, I mean, it it wouldn't be good news unless we know the bad news first. God's word talks about it and what he's done and what he wants us to do. And so we must see it the way God sees it and see ourselves the way God sees us. And for the believer, remember, we're in the mixed condition. Just need to always bring this before us. Christ paid the penalty of sin, so the power of sin was broken presence of sin remains in our hearts and today we're going to talk a lot about fighting the sin of pride in progressive sanctification and so I want to tell you God chooses to use sinful people for his good purposes so as I share with you today um, I have had the opportunity to examine my heart and recognize more areas of pride in my life so there is conviction And I have had to shepherd my heart. I've had to remind my heart that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I prayed for you and asked God to help us fight harder in obedience by his grace. So we all press on, right? We press on together. Most likely there will be an awareness of sin today because the truth is we all have a residue of pride in our hearts. But there is hope, and we don't lose heart. He has many promises for us. He promises to finish what he started. He will complete it, and it brings glory to him as we fight. And I'm just one beggar, as the Angstead say, say, pointing another to the bread. So I want to start by asking, does someone have a Kleenex? Thank you. I want to start by asking... um, Do you see yourself as a prideful person? When we hear the word pride or arrogance, um, we might, thank you so much, it's cute too, we might be tempted to think of someone else first. You know, pride is a lot easier to identify in others, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But as seriously dangerous as pride is, is it's equally hard to spot in ourselves. The thing is, others can see it more clearly, can see more clearly those things we may not recognize about ourselves or may be unwilling to address. So remember, our hearts are prone to deceive and prone to being deceived, and hopefully by God's grace, we will all continue to grow in being able to identify areas of pride and see pride as God sees it and grow and the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior and become uh, more and more conformed to the image in our sancti- his image in our sanctification. So pride is something we all struggle with. It's not one of us exempt from it. But here's the deal. We must guard against being okay with that and thinking, okay, yes, we all struggle with it, you know, or whatever sin. And I'm just like everyone else. And we, or we can begin to maybe even elevate um, our sin becoming proud that we see it, but not battling to eradicate it from our lives. And we want to learn to see sin as God sees it as we look to his word and the great cost that was paid. And it should cause our hearts to be humbled, to be broken and contrite over our sin because we will see that ultimately it's against God. And to be humbled by the fact that I am no longer a slave to pride. And now I have his power to obey. I didn't even want to obey before God saved me. And I didn't have the power to obey. So in order to help uh, to see and understand how pride displays itself and help identify pride in our own hearts, I'm going to start by asking some questions. And if you've done Wellspring before, you're probably thinking about this 
at this point like, oh no, not those questions. <laughs> because we share them every year and they're just so good. Um, this is from 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Lee DeMoss. And you have the handout, but just kind of put it away for right now if you don't mind. I'm just going to read a few of them. And you'll have an opportunity this week to go and um, read all of them as you go before the Lord. All right. So, are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in position of leadership? Do you give undue time, undue attention and effort to your physical appearance, your hair, your makeup, your clothing, your body, or... Are you proud that you don't waste time on that? See, it goes both ways, right? <laughs> are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you're able to accomplish in a day? Or are you proud of just how laid back you are? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, and acceptance from others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God and to others? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Or do you get impatient with people who aren't? Do you tend to be controlling of others? Your husband, your children, your friends, your coworkers, your siblings? Does your husband or anyone else feel like they can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Are you more concerned about your problems, your needs, or burdens? Than about others' concerns? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or maybe your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things to God and to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of God's word? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help, either practically or spiritually? When is the last time you said these words? I was wrong. Please forgive me. Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone you know? <laughs> these are hard questions, right? They're really convicting questions. I, I could just about say yes in some form to every one of these questions. So have you changed your thinking on how pride can show itself in your heart? One author said pride is self-obsession. Pride is preoccupation with ourselves. Therefore, it's a lie about reality. It says I'm worth thinking about all the time. It is an orientation that wrongly assumes that everything revolves around us. It deserves to die, but it's hard to spot and even harder to kill. It's a slippery sin. Jonathan Edwards said, Pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. So let's take a look at, what, at God's concern for pride in the heart. We're going to start on your outline and we're going to start by looking at Deuteronomy 17. So please turn to Deuteronomy 17. And we're going to see the danger to which pride exposes the heart. 
Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And now here's where Moses is given instruction to Israel regarding a king that they will have someday. And starting in verse 18, he says, Now it shall come about when, when he, the king, sits on, his, sits on the throne of his kingdom, and he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. So he's to write God's word on a scroll. And why? That he may learn to fear the Lord as God. How? By carefully observing all the words this law and um, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Verse 20, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So the king's to write a copy of the law for himself in the presence of the Levitical priest. Make sure he gets it right, and it's always to be in his presence. He's to read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. He's to keep God's word with him and read it in order to prevent him from lifting up his heart above others in arrogance and pride. To prevent the king from thinking he was better than all of the rest. And he needed God's word close to his heart so that he didn't exempt himself from the standard that everyone else had to live by. He had to live by the same standard. The king of Israel was to be on the same level ground as everyone else. And it was God's law, God's word, God's revelation of himself that would do the leveling. The great leveler for all of us is God's word. So we have some how about me questions on your outline. And, you know, they're just there to help you to evaluate and think, um, you know, I wish someone else wasn't, was here listening to this or someone else needed to hear this. That's not what this lesson is about. This is for us to evaluate our own hearts and to guard against thinking of anyone else this morning. So the first question is, do I realize I'll exalt myself without a steady diet of God's word? Do I realize that I'll start thinking that somebody else needs God's word more than I do and exempt myself? See, we need to be continually exposed to God at the heart level. That's why we talk about discipline one so much, to prevent us from lifting up our hearts above others in pride, to prevent us from thinking we're somehow above those around us, you know, or quickly pointing out you know, pointing, pointing our finger at others who may not be as good or obedient as we are or those who have been caught up in sin. We need to continually, worshipfully, prayerfully be exposed to God's word at the heart level to prevent us from elevating ourselves in pride and to seek a humble attitude through time with him and his word and have an attitude that is, but for the grace of God, there go I, rather than feeling superior to anyone. And to feel deeply grateful that God, by his grace, has kept us from or perhaps rescued us from sin. Right? All right, so let's uh, go back to your outline and let's turn to Proverbs 16.5. Proverbs 16.5. And this is Solomon. It's what he is, um, what he says about pride to his son. says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination. Or the Holman Christian standard says, detestable to the Lord. God hates it. He says, assuredly, he will not be unpunished. That's God's response to pride. It must be punished. So I may hate my sin. I may hate, this, I may hate the sin of pride. But we see God hates it even more. The Son of God, he was punished for our pride, for our arrogance, at the cross. He didn't change his mind how he feels about it. Christ willingly became my sin, that my arrogance was to God, and that those are the things I need to preach to my heart on a regular basis. The gospel, I need to preach the gospel to my heart to see my sin clearly in light of the price that was paid and what God accomplished on our behalf. Do I do that? Do you do that? the next question. Do I preach the gospel realities to my heart 
and let them turn me away from the arrogance for which Christ suffered and died. All right, so let's turn to Hosea 13. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Now, Hosea is a prophet, and this is a statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at the time of Exodus and wilderness wanderings. And God is looking back, and starting in verse 4, he says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And then, he, and then he shifts from uh, talking to them, and he starts talking about them in verse 6. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, you see what happened? Their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. We see here how dangerous a prideful heart is. A prideful heart can be tempted to forget God. He warned them about that in Deuteronomy 8. Remember we talked about that in the survey of the home lesson? And we see here the root of forgetting God is pride. Their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. There's such a danger when, when we're satisfied and we're comfortable and we have God's provision, we're blessed. That's when we can be tempted to forget God, and none of us are exempt from that temptation. There's never a day, ladies, that we won't have to watch for that. You know, because it's easy to remember to cry out to God when things are hard, right? You know, our relationships are hard, financial problems, health problems. Those trials help us see our great need for the Lord. But we always need the Lord. We always need the Lord. So what can we do to be just as intentional about seeking him when we're satisfied, when we're comfortable? Again, we go back to discipline one. So we talk about all the time. We must bring our hearts to meet with God and his word, to acknowledge our ongoing need for himself. That's why I read that prayer. To, and we go back to acknowledging that consistently. So in Hosea and Deuteronomy 8, we saw one way pride might show itself. When things are going great, things are going okay, we can forget God. How else might we forget God? Well, one way is maybe we find ourselves using the excuse of busyness for not meeting with God in his word, for not praying. When you do that, are you ever convicted that that's pride? I mean, we, we may not see that as pride because that's what's so tricky about rooting out pride out of our lives because it wears a lot of faces. And you know what? I, I just please hear me when I say I know that there are um, seasons of challenges in, in each of our lives and there are obstacles, many obstacles, and many of us are busy. We live busy, full lives. So busyness isn't what, we're talk what I'm talking about at all, really. Busyness is not necessarily sinful, maybe the season that you're in. But if we're using busyness as an excuse for not meeting with God in his word, for not praying, or not acknowledging our dependence on him, we don't make our relationship with him and our time with him a priority. Think about what we're saying. God... <laughs> I know better than you what my heart needs today. I know better than you what my heart needs. That's pride, right? Because we don't always see the root and the faces of pride and how there's depths and layers. It's just helpful for us to identify the real reason and the condition of our hearts and to root it out. When we're consistently neglecting to prioritize time with him in his word and time with him in prayer, do you see how this can lead to forgetting God? One day leads to two, leads to a week, leads to three. All of a sudden, we forget God. I know better, God, than what my heart needs. Do you see that? 
So the next question on your outline, do I see how dangerous a prideful heart is? Because it can lead to divine forgetfulness. And when I'm tempted to not meet with him, because, you know, things are going pretty well. I'm, you know, I'm blessed. Things are going great. I'm busy. Watch out. I have to remind my own heart what it needs most. My heart needs to meet with him. My heart needs to draw near to him in prayer more than anything. Because that's when I can be tempted to forget God. You guys hanging in there? Doing okay? Okay. Let's move on to 2 Chronicles. Let's look at King Uzziah. 2 Chronicles... 26, 2 Chronicles 26, starting in verse 1, and all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. Verse 4 says, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And verse 6 through 15 describes all the kinds of achievements and victories. And verse 7 tells us why God helped him. God helped him. And then in verse 15, hence his fame spread afar. He was marvelously helped, right, by God. His fame um, spreads afar until he was strong. Verse 16, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud. It's the same danger we saw in Deuteronomy 8 and in Hosea. He was successful. He was strong. See, success can be dangerous to our hearts if we're not guarding them. Success may be the very thing we pursue. And it can lead, um, and, and we can let that compete with our affection to the Lord. Success is fine, but if it's leading to um, competing with our affection to the Lord, it's dangerous. We see the danger in verse 16. When he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord as God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Hmm. Now, how is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act? How is that being unfaithful to the Lord? As we read on in verse 17, we'll see. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord because he had overstepped his authority, his boundaries of authority God had given him. The Lord had marvelously helped him. He granted him success and victories. But service in the temple was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. And even though he was king, it wasn't for him to take. See, burning incense wasn't a bad thing, but Uzziah wasn't qualified to do it. It wasn't his role. So how about us? Are we ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to us? Are you ever tempted to work around the roles that God has for you, say, in your marriage, with your parents, boss, husband? Now, maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled. I mean, he was king after all, right? But again, he wasn't. He wasn't entitled. Do I ever do that? So the next question, am I ever tempted to grasp authority which hasn't been given to me or feel a sense of entitlement? It is so tempting to have an attitude of entitlement, right? Our culture screams entitlement. I mean, just what went on this week, women's rights, entitled to whatever. And if our hearts are not in full contact with God's word, we can begin to believe the same lie. The lie like, I'm entitled to something for me. I have the right to me time. I'm entitled to respect, especially from my children, right? 
I'm entitled to appreciation. I'm entitled to comfort. We deserve, and you just fill in the blank. We deserve a break today. We deserve time alone. We deserve respect. We deserve fulfillment. We deserve happiness. We deserve retirement. <laughs> exactly. What do we deserve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we deserve hell, right? That's what we deserve. So I must go back to thinking about my identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Gospel thinking and repent of a pride. Uh, prideful sense of entitlement. When we think what we want is more important than what God has for us, that's pride. Now, desire may not be a simple desire, your desire. Many desires are great desires. But when I demand what I desire and I sin to get it, thinking I'm entitled, just important to realize what's going on in my heart. See, because how I react, even in my heart, when I'm not treated the way I feel I'm entitled to be treated, I don't get what I think I'm entitled to is telling. Maybe your kids aren't obeying. Maybe your husband's not living up to what you want. Maybe someone's rude to you, to me. Maybe I get cut off on the freeway and I don't, or I don't get the attention that I deserve. Well, it's good practice to pay attention to your heart at those times and see how it reacts, see how it responds, and it helps you to identify what's going on in your heart and to root out prideful thinking. Now, a sense of entitlement can take on many different forms. Maybe another form might be laziness because I'm entitled to do what I want to do with my time. Now, what might laziness look like in our lives? Well, it might look like overindulgence in sleep or entertainment, you know, like TV, computer time, reading blogs, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, anybody else? Not that any of those things are bad, okay? Not that any of those things are bad. In fact, many of them can be quite helpful, but isn't it so easy just to get caught up and spend more time than what we really have, than what's been given to us? And I say it again, many of those things are really helpful and they're really good, and that's not the point. So please don't leave here going, she said that TV is bad or, you know, Pinterest is bad. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's not necessarily sinful, but anytime I put those things ahead of the responsibilities that God has given me, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's selfish gain. Anytime we put what we want to do ahead of, or think we're entitled to, ahead of what God has given us to do, like Spending time with him in his word and praying and helping our husbands and caring for our homes and families and roommates and serving the body of Christ and disciplining and training our children, reaching out to the lost. Anytime we put ourselves first, self-exaltation and self-promotion, which is what the world would totally encourage us to do, right? Especially women. Well, that's pride. This is very convicting, isn't it? Well, or maybe it's just me. <laughs> and my husband, I he listened to this whole thing, so that's humbling. <laughs> it's good. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority, or laziness, or self-exaltation. See, sin has partners. There's connections. It brings other sins right along. So again, it's just helpful to train ourselves to identify these things. And here's what I had to do. Ask others to help us make that connection, to see the sin under the sin. Asking others, those who are closest to you, is just the opposite of pride. It's humbling. But it helps us see things that we may not see. Okay, let's turn to the New Testament. Let's turn to James. James 3.13. 
Now, in chapter 2, James has been dealing with those in the body who are drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment, especially for the rich, and they dishonor the poor, which is pride. And he gives instruction and warning. And then in um, verse 13, he says, Who among... Is it wrong? No, can you just go through the references? I don't think it pays for that. James 13... I'm so sorry. James 3.13. James 3.13. Michelle, we probably need to add that for next year. Thank you. Sorry about that. Now, um, starting in verse 13, you guys all there? James chapter 3. 13, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? In your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic for where there is jealousy and selfish ambition there is disorder and every evil thing see if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts if we have selfish ambition in our hearts it positions us to be arrogant to be prideful bitter jealousy and selfish ambition unchecked just lead to arrogance so we need to be wise We need to guard our hearts. Again, this passage in James, it just helps us to see just how one sin can lead to another kind of sin. And the good news is when we fight sin strategically by his grace, it might help in defeating others. It's like a chain reaction, like dominoes, instead of just dealing with one. So when we see jealousy, what's the root of that? When we see selfish ambition, what's the root of that? It's pride, right? All right, so, so far, we've seen a few faces of pride. We've seen forgetting God, a sense of entitlement, overstepping our bound, our authority, laziness, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And if we go after the root and we see and repent of pride, we actually will be doing battle with these other sins. So that's what we're talking about. We need to train our health, ourselves and make the connections to see our heart. All right, let's look for some other faces of pride, as if we need more. Let's turn to Second Chronicles 32. Second Chronicles 32, King Hezekiah. Starting in verse 24, he says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally, mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Verse 25, But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. The NIV says he did not respond to the kindness shown to him. Why? It goes on and says, because his heart was so proud. It's another face of pride. He didn't respond to the kindness God showed him. Maybe he wasn't thankful. So how might we fail to respond to God's kindness? Well, we know Romans 2, 4, right? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting your sin? Are you quick to repent when you've sinned? To seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else? Or your sin has affected someone else in some way. Or do you just ignore it? You know, think everybody should just kind of move on. It's just the way I am. So, you know, it happens all the time. Move on. We may be tempted to think it's really not that big of a deal. Or we may want to avoid a very uncomfortable situation. But that's not repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's a failure to respond to God's kindness and evidence of a prideful heart. If you want, this reference is not on your outline, but in 2 Corinthians 7, there's um, just a, a great picture of what true repentance and zealousness to repent looks like. Another way we may not respond to God's kindness is complaining or being discontent. 
That's a failure to respond to God's kindness, a failure to recognize God's kindness to us in all circumstances. A complaining attitude is so easy for me to fall into. There's so many things that I'm tempted to complain about. can complain about our appearance, how hard we work, how tired we are. And you know what? Can I just say something? Because we have the time. I want to pause and talk about how tired we are. Complaint. Because this is just, at the end of the day, if we're tired, isn't that because we've probably done maybe what we were called to do? We should be tired when we lay our heads down at night, right? If we're not, I, I have to shepherd my heart. If I'm not tired when I put my head on the pillow at night, huh, that's a great way to evaluate evaluate what I have been doing with my time. Anyway, that's just like a bunny trail. <laughs> um, so other things we can complain about, unbelieving family members. Um, difficulties with people we live with or work with, or financial problems, just self-pity because we think life should be different. Somehow, life should just be different. But complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart because on a heart level, we really think we deserve something better, something different than what we have right now. And, you know, like many of you, I've been so encouraged by the gods and reading Cameron's um, posts. And I've also been encouraged by the Hantlets and reading their posts. They're going through trials. And would they want things to be different? That desire isn't bad. But you know what? They are submitting under God's hand. And they are recognizing that um, I've, heard, I've heard Cameron say it and read it and post that if, if God had anything better for them, that is what they would have. And I I just want to have that kind of attitude that the Hantlins and the Dodds have um, definitely displayed to us as a body. Um, when I talked to her on Sunday, she said, it's good to be brought low. And that is where we are all the time anyway, she said. It's just, we're just I did, recognizing it. So anyway... When we don't really believe that whatever the circumstance, it's God's good for me, it's best for me, it's really a failure to respond to God's kindness. And you know what? If you struggle with this complaining and discontentment, I feel like I'm going to start doing a book promotion at this point. But this book, has anybody read The Greener Grass Conspiracy? Ugh, it is a great book to help. Um, it helped me so much in identifying those areas in my heart where I am discontent and where I complain a lot. And it's something I think that would be one of those read-every-year books. All right. So Second Chronicles 32 says that evidence of pride in my heart is not responding to God's kindness. And then we see the consequence of that pride at the end of verse 25. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. See, the reality is that others may experience consequences for our sin. And do we realize that? Do we realize the impact our pride, our sin, will have on others? Consequences run deep and wide many times. And then look at verse 26. Here's some encouragement. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. And we see who humbled. Hezekiah humbled the pride in his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And that just gives us great encouragement, that God was willing to turn back from his wrath in the face of repentance. In the face of repentance. And the hope of believers who live after the cross is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our sin. He gives us a new heart so that we can so that we can repent of pride and humble our hearts because we have this new ability in Christ to do that. So another question, how might I fail to respond to God's kindness? Do I recognize the impact my pride has? On others, and those we live with, our kids, and 
those we come into contact with most? How, mal, how might other experience consequences for my sin? So we've seen many faces of pride tempting us to forget God, often through success and blessing, not staying within our authority, a sense of entitlement, laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting of sin, complaining, discontentment, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. I mean, the list is endless, right? So when pride is exposed in our hearts, what should we do? What should we do? Well, it helps to recognize that there are connections between sin. Partners, they partner with each other. One sin rarely operates on its own. So we fight sin strategically. We deal with pride when it's exposed by God's grace in the gospel. These are things we must bring to the cross. You know, and I mean, and I just got to say, believers, it's not that it's not there. It's there. It's God's kindness when he reveals it to us, right? That's his kindness that he's exposing it because it is there. Others see it usually. But we ask God, you know, Father, please show me where, my, where pride exists in my heart. Show me where I tend to be arrogant. And please give me eyes to see. And we confess to God and, we, and, and others. And we repent and we seek forgiveness from those whom we've sinned against in our pride. Those are things for which Christ died and we need to ask him because it's so easy to see pride in others but not in ourselves. You know, that's effect of sin. Sin blinds us to our own pride. Um, what do we do when we see others being arrogant? We certainly should see it as an opportunity to go before the Lord and ask him to make me so nearsighted to see my sin before I see others. You know, help me see this huge log in my own eye, Matthew 7, and repent of that before I, you know, so I am ready to help my sister with her speck. So we humble ourselves. We repent of pride. All right, so now let's take a look at what God's word has to say about humility, the opposite of pride, cultivating humility. Let's turn to 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, um, and what is humility? Um, William Law said, he's an 18th century guy that hopefully is with the Lord and has been for a long time. Humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. That just kind of sums it up. It's a right judgment of ourselves. A.W. Tozer says, The meek man is not a humble mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life, in himself nothing, in God everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. He's not concerned with others' opinions. He's concerned with God's opinion, mostly with God's opinion. There's another book. If you struggle with the opinion of others, what others are thinking about you, it's called The Fear of Man. Um, this book I read long ago, and it's one of those books that's highlighted all over the place and falling apart because I needed this book, and I still need to hear the truth from this book. When people are big and God is small, and it just helps you to I, to put off the fear of man and to care more about what God thinks and what others think. Anyone read this book? You read it? Yeah, isn't it so good? Yeah, so that's another one. And um, I... The author is um, Ed Welch. You can get it on Amazon. I think this is the only one left out there, but I'll talk to Jeff about this one. He'll, he'll be ordering more, I'm sure. And, oh, the Greener Grass Conspiracy, I have the last copy, but he has ordered more. So if anybody wants that, you can have it. You can purchase it. All right. So in 1 Peter 5, uh, starting in verse 5, he says, Young men, be subject to your elders. And then he says, and all of you, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, so he says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. 
Humility is something that has to be lived out in relationships. When we're, when we're in relationships with one another, our hearts are exposed then and they're in a better position to see where we need to humble ourselves. Um, and the passage continues, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves. And where do we humble ourselves? Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here's how he shows us to humble ourselves. Verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So he calls us to humble ourselves by casting or by accepting the care that he has for us. I mean, it's actually pride to reject his care. C.J. Mahaney says about this verse in his book, Humility, another great book, um, and it's out there on the bookshelf, and it's short. It's just really helpful. He says this, where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I am experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So it's a form, really, of forgetting God, right? So the solution is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. So we need to humble ourselves before others. We need to confess sin when we're criticized and rebuked so we can look beyond that person to our mighty God who cares for you. Believer, he loves you. He's the one we're humbling ourselves to. He's the one who is at work for our good and his glory, right? Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves and of our Savior and seeing others as instruments (coughs) God is using to purify us. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel fleeing to Christ, acknowledging how prideful we really are and thanking God and praising God for what he has done for us, the cross. I want to take some time and just read the section in this book, A Gospel Primer. It is so good. If you don't have it, we have plenty in the bookstore. If you want one, um, talk to me after. Um, It's Cultivating Humility section. And he, uh, he says, and what I love about this book is there's scripture references. Everything that I'm going to say in this section, there's scripture references below. So he says, according to scripture, God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way so as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. This is actually a wonderful mercy from God, for pride is at the root of all my sins. Pride produced the first sin in the garden, and pride always precedes every sinful stumbling in my life. Therefore, if I'm to experience deliverance from sin, I must be delivered from the pride that produced it. Thankfully, the gospel is engineered to accomplish this deliverance. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. Conversely, humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more humility flourishes within me, the more I experience God's grace, along with the strengthening his grace provides. Additionally, Such humility intensifies my passion for God and causes my heart increasingly to thrill whenever he is praised. Isn't that so good? Mm -hmm. I could be done. 
But let's turn to Colossians 3. Let's turn to Colossians 3. We're almost done. See, not only will a humble heart draw us near our, to our Savior, it will draw us near to one another. Colossians 3 and 10. Um, watch how Paul starts out with who we are, our gospel identity in verse 12. He says, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. So he starts out with our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And now, because of that, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. See, the command to be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And then the second thing um, we don't want to miss is that humility serves a greater purpose. Humility is essential for building unity and love between believers. John 13.34, I think it's on your outline, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples. And that's what we want, right? If you have love for one another. See, we're not our own. We're his slaves and he is our very kind master. And he's entrusted us the greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for pride, to pay for sin so that we can walk in newness of life. All those gospel realities. We can walk in humility. We can live with one another in such a way that they look at us and say, how do they do that? Why are they not so entitled to all these other things, but they're loving one another. They're caring for one another. They're serving one another, and they do it with joy. They look so different. It's just not normal, and that's why we, um, why do they do that? It's a kind of living that adorns the gospel, puts Christ on display, declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. And finally, let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on, one, intent on one purpose. So we're called to be, not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love and unity with the body. Similar to Colossians 3, this appeal to unity and love. And what does that require? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest, interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And listen to what he says about our Savior, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Not are we tempted just to grasp and take hold of what we want? Jesus didn't grasp. But what did he do? In verse 7, he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus took on the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's how we received enabling grace, the grace that turned from that, the grace to turn from pride and all of its many, many faces to humility, to love. Because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty 
of our selfish ambition, of our sin, and to break the power of sin over us and to give new life and a love relationship with himself and with his people. It's the power of the gospel. So to battle pride, we need to always be on the lookout for the many, many faces. This is endless. Humility is fundamentally a form of self-forgetfulness as, to, as opposed to pride's fixation. When you think about yourself less, you know what? You're free to think about Christ more. Seeing the cross rightly helps us in our battle. Seeing the cross rightly means we see ourselves rightly. Pride is defeated decisively at conversion, progressively in sanctification, and totally, totally at glorification, where we will experience everlasting worship of God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that you have chosen us, you've called us, love us. And so, Father, I ask where there is conviction, again, that you would also, by your Spirit, help us to battle the way you want us to battle. Remembering it's not enough to be convicted, but we need to be doers of your word, not just hearers. And so that we would battle pride, we would, uh, we would see ourselves rightly, we would see you rightly, and thank you for your enabling, sufficient grace to us. Um, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, you call us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. In your son's name we pray, amen.